If you've uh, been with us the past uh, number of weeks, you have uh, noted that John's gospel in chapter 6 starts out with um, an actual miracle. Um, that's the feeding of the 5,000. Then Jesus sends the disciples off into a boat, if you remember, and there's a storm that comes up. And then when they finally get to land, um, the uh, crowd comes and uh, basically starts talking with Jesus. And you have this, this kind of broad uh, understanding of this, this, this mass of this crowd coming and interacting with Jesus. And then it kind of whittles down to the, the religious leadership and their response to what Jesus is saying and what he's claiming. And uh, we looked at that last week. And today we're looking at the disciples. So you see this kind of broad neck kind of getting narrower and narrower. Now it's talking about the disciples of Jesus. And um, in fact, if you look at verse 60, we have this first reaction recorded um, by the disciples about what Jesus is saying. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? So when we come to this particular passage, friends, we're kind of, you know, even in, in the gospel, not just in the story and the characters that are there, there is this, this kind of coming to a head, coming to a focal point, and you see that focal point being in Peter's confession, in what he says. And how does he describe Jesus? Well, he says, um, um, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So it's driving here to the evidence and to the demonstration about who Jesus really is in this particular encounter as the bread of life and as the one come down from heaven. And so uh, I just want to begin by making sure we see the, the progress in this particular chapter that is going to be helpful for us. Now, back at verse 60, I want you to notice what it says. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? It's described as a hard saying. And that reveals then this distinction between belief and unbelief. The, the disciples here are responding to this hard saying. The dividing line for John was never race. It was always a response to Jesus. And that's one of the problems with, I want to say, culture today. There's this division over things that Jesus never divides over. If there's one place where people are included for who they are racially, it is the church. Because we all come from different you know, nations and, and tribes, and we all gather together under one banner, and that is followers of Jesus Christ. And um, so the dividing line here is how people respond to Jesus, and ultimately, um, here we have two responses to the hard sayings um, by the disciples. And I want to pause here just for a moment, and I, I think it's important for us to recognize um, that there is a huge distinction here between what we typically understand to be a disciple and how the word disciple is used in the Gospels. Now just remember, we today are looking back to Jesus who already died on the cross and the church being established. And so today when we think of a disciple, a follower of Christ, we think of someone who is looking back to the cross, having embraced Christ as the Lord and Savior, having been the recipients of God's grace, having entered into the family of God, they are now in this process of becoming a disciple. But in the time here of the Gospels, that event, that accomplishment on the cross hasn't taken place yet. 
And there were, during that time, many people who were following different, I want to say religious leaders or in particular, rabbis. And those rabbis had disciples. Remember, we've already heard about the disciples of John the Baptist, right? They were following him as their teacher. And here we have Jesus who has this following of disciples. What's interesting then for us, and this is kind of a paradigm shift, this might be an aha moment for you, but the disciples here are described as being a larger group than the 12. John is making a distinction here between many disciples and some disciples, and in particular, the 12. So when you think about so far, in this, in this gospel, there are these disciples, these disciples really are referring to, and I'll say this, um, not necessarily a believer, a convert, or one who is part of the elect. Okay, so don't just equate right now the word disciple with someone who is a true believer, a true follower, and someone who would be considered part of the elect. They have simply affixed themselves to Jesus as their rabbi, so to speak. They're in this mode of saying, okay, we like what we're hearing, we like what he's doing, and we're following him now, we're affixing ourselves to him, and that was understandable. But what's taking place now as the story unfolds is that these disciples are kind of changing their attitude about their particular rabbi and the one they have chosen to listen to. So we need to see this word disciple um, in this text in its broader sense, not in its more specific uh, sense that we would usually use it in the context of the church. That's why we can look at this passage and see, first of all, that many disciples will turn back. Um, they are fading fast. Some disciples will keep following. They are forging ahead. And those who would be true disciples are still in process. They're still growing. Their faith is still being formed. They haven't arrived yet. When I was in, in high school in England, um, I used to run track. In fact, I was never the best at anything um, but what I typically was involved in was the uh, decathlon, uh, except for the pole vault. They put something else in there instead of that because we couldn't, for insurance purposes, do that, all right? And no mom wants to see their, their son go flying up in the air over with a pole, right? Um, but I did that. And one, one of the events that, that uh, was probably the hardest for me, there were really two, would be uh, the 1500 and the 400. Anyone here ever run track before? Um, you know, running track is, is not an easy thing. It's not just a physical issue, it's also a mental issue. Run too fast, and you, you, know, you, you lose your strength. You, you may think, ah, oh, I'm at the front of the pack, and all this kind of stuff, but you typically, if you're running too fast, will, will fade off in the end. And it's a sad story to see someone just do so well, and then for that last lap, boom, they just kind of fall back. The other thing is, if you run too slow, your body ends up being sluggish. And you just can't pick up the pace. And so, so a runner has to find out what their pace is. And they've got to forget about everyone else. They've got to think about what do I need to do. And then from that place of strength, be able to move ahead. And I simply use that as an example to say, this is true in our discipleship. That we need to be moving ahead. We need to be forging ahead. We need to be thinking about that finish line and, and making progress there and, and, and really be thinking about what's going on with ourselves so that we can finish strong. As we come to John chapter 6 and verses 60 through 71, the passage that we've read, here we'll see two responses to the hard sayings of Jesus. This, in essence, is what this passage is about. First of all, we're going to see the marks of a fading discipleship. 
And then we're going to see the marks of a forging discipleship. A discipleship that's fading and a discipleship that is forming. And remember, discipleship does not mean believer yet, right? It means someone who has said, aha, here's someone that sounds good. Look at the things they're doing. I want to go and put myself under them and then learn from them and grow with them. But what happens when I actually hear some of the things that they're saying? And it begins now to to get to the heart of the issue. And there's a fading that takes place. Then there are those that are forging ahead. They're they're, they're facing the things that they're being taught. They're they're beginning to understand the things that are being explained and shown them, and they're forging ahead. And obviously, we want to be in the latter group, right? And that's that's really an important thing for us. Um, But it's also helpful and important for us to at least understand what this looks like so that we can have a perspective of what true discipleship is as opposed to what false discipleship is all about. So let's think now about um, these marks of discipleship. Let me, just, let me just pause here and just say this. Um, I, I, this, uh, this past month when I went to the Together for the Gospel, I, I got this uh, Modern Reformation magazine, um, which I used to subscribe to years ago. Um, but this one in particular is on the subject exit. I thought this is interesting. It's interviews um, of all different kinds of people, probably about eight examples in here, about people who have left biblical Christianity. And they've gone into things like um, Islam. Uh, They've gone into, um, um, let's see, what else was there? There was the Eastern Orthodox Roman Catholicism, the Emergent Church. And my point here is saying this. Sometimes we think about about, you know, people wandering away from the faith, and it's like, oh, yeah, that really doesn't happen that much. It is, and it's happening tremendously. Let me tell you why it's happening tremendously, because the American church has lost the core reality of the gospel, and they've replaced it with some kind of a formulaic um, approach to how we do church, and this is what happened um, back in the 80s in particular with the seeker-sensitive movement, and in particular the Willow Creek ministry mentality where we basically create a church based on what the community says the church should look like and be. Make it palatable and and make it something that is attractive. And we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to hurt anyone. And so we deliberately don't do certain things or don't say certain things so that people will come and they will listen. And the, the problem is the gospel then was not proclaimed because of fear about the effect of what was going on there. That's just one context. And so people now, having gone through that, and many people who have gone through churches like that, if there has been a genuine faith, have left those ministries and gone to other various churches. Willow Creek is an example of that. And I say this because they've looked back and said, you know what, we, we, we were wrong. We can go back, and Bill Heibel says, you know what, this wasn't the best model of ministry. And what happened is people would come, and those that truly were getting saved are now farmed out to a variety of churches in the Chicago area. And praise the Lord that there are people there that are preaching the word and, and, and taking people through the truth of the gospel. But listen, people are abandoning Christianity because they never had it in the first place. And the place that they went to wasn't really presenting biblical Christianity. It was a form of, might want to say, very broad, fuzzy Christianity. And it's empty. Now hear this. If it's empty, what are you going to do when you're longing to be satisfied? You're going to look somewhere else, right? Now, here's another one, more recent, um, the, the growth of what's called the emergent church. Anyone heard about the emergent church? Basically takes a lot of 
medieval thinking and, and, and embraces it, um, a lot of candles, a lot of meditation, um, a lot of kind of a casual atmosphere, um, and not that I have nothing against candles, I have nothing against meditation, you see that in Scripture, but it's all these things that are done in the place of the preaching of the Word of God, and it's a little bit more, I want to say, experiential, and it really was a reaction, again, to this contemporary church that's all about show and all about putting on the big program, and listen, you know, we, we have a, you know, a band that, that that helps us in worship here. But you go to some churches, and it's all about, wow, the band's just boom, blowing us away. And it's like, is that really what church is supposed to be about? And sometimes it's, it's just been too much, and, and people are just saying, I, I want truth. I want substance. I want something that's going to give me direction, and, and I, want, I want to know who God is, and not just kind of this, this warm, fuzzy God. I want to know who he is because I'm hungering for truth. I'm hungering for satisfaction, and the church is, by and large, in many places, not been giving that because of fear that it would offend. There's a lot of different reasons. My, my, my basic point in just highlighting these things is this. Friends, people are walking away from Christianity. And so our message today and our passage today is helpful for us, yes, to look at our own heart, but also to understand the playing field. This is something that is an issue today, and so we should pay attention and think about it. So we're going to look at, first of all, uh, marks of a fading discipleship. And... uh, Let me just kind of set the stage for some of the things we're going to talk about. We've already seen in John's gospel, if you want to just turn back there briefly and just read it for yourself, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we had all these people coming, all these people celebrating, all these people, you know, gathered and saying, yeah, you know, we're following you, but Jesus could see right through that. It was a superficial faith, okay? So they had all the appearance of genuine faith, but um, it wasn't genuine, it was superficial, and friends, that's sadly, so much um, of what we see in, in American Christianity. And, here, and let me kind of explain it further. Um, oftentimes, and I say we, evangelical Christianity, is afraid to ask the hard questions. Someone says, well, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a child of God. Well, let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about how you came to faith. Well, you know, I prayed a prayer. Okay. Praying's good. But what, what did you pray, and why did you pray, and what were you praying for, and did you understand what those things were? There has been this, this move just to you know, get people into the kingdom, get people into the kingdom. And so there's this fear of actually dealing with the truth. Okay? So people have prayed prayers. They've walked down aisles. They've been baptized. They've had a date written in the cover or title page of their Bibles. And you know what? There's, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with having something written in your Bible so that you can remember that time when you, you know for certain that, that, you know, that God drew you into his kingdom. But for most people, we don't know the exact moment. We may struggle even to find the day, but we know that there was this time and this move when, when our hearts and our attitudes began to change about, uh, about what the world was like and what was going on in our relationship with God, and we began to see things differently. And what was going on as we studied God's Word is that God was breathing regeneration into us, and we're seeing things afresh and new, okay? But when important questions are asked, it is not unusual to find answers that give evidence to the fact that they are really, or these people really have no walk 
or a relationship with the one true God of the universe. To have a walk that assumes that there must be movement, right? My wife came to me and said, Rod, let's go for a walk. And I said, yeah, sure. And I just stood there. Um, would I be going for a walk? In my mind, we all, you know, that's how we exercise, right? It's just mental. It's just, we can't get over that. I could juggle a soccer ball, but I'm still not walking. I could swing a golf club, but I'm still not walking. And, and I think sometimes we're doing a lot of different things, but we're not walking with Christ. Okay, and I say we, I'm just saying generally, church at large. There's a lot of things going on, but is there truly a walk with Christ? Now, the other thing is even if we begin to address some of those issues in love and compassion and concern for people's souls, this is likely what the, the response is going to be. Hey, you're too narrow-minded. You're judgmental. You're unloving. You're cold-hearted Calvinists consumed with doctrine. Right? I mean, all these kinds of things are what come out. It's like, no, we care. You know why? Because we don't want someone thinking that they have a, a relationship with God when they don't. And that's why Scripture just, I mean, we, we find it regularly. Examine yourself. We find these passages that seem to be warning us to say, you know what, if this is you, if, if, there's the poss- if you're falling away, check, see. Those, those warning passages are there for our benefit, to help us. So our hearts break for them because they have a distorted gospel that never really deals with sin. I mean, why is it that one of the largest ministries in our country, the pastor on national TV say, well, I just don't like to talk about sin. I just want to be positive then you don't believe the gospel. The gospel has to deal with sin. Just being positive is just being positive. It's empty. People want substance. They want satisfaction. So there's a distorted gospel. There's also a distorted God that is not the same God as was revealed in his, wor- in, in, in his word. He's somewhat of a genie. Um, he's a buddy. He's a friend. He's a, a, a loving grandpa. He's, uh, he's my co-pilot and if you have a bumper sticker, I'm not telling you to take it off. I'm just, we, we relegate him down to our level rather than step back in awe and say, you are, <laughs> you cannot be measured except for what you've revealed about yourself in your word. Right? You with me there? There's also a distorted grace that emphasizes forgiveness without true repentance. It's a distorted grace. And then there's a distorted growth that is tied either to a form of legalism or some sort of spiritual zapping up to a higher plane. And we've talked about some of that stuff already. But just listen, there's this, this, this distortion of what biblical Christianity, Christianity is about. And I want to be careful. I'm not trying to paint this broad stroke and just say that everyone out there apart from us is all, you know. No, there, there are solid gospel, Bible-believing churches around. But there's also the prevalence of an empty, weak gospel and people come and they think simply because they've done X, Y, and Z that they've got their entrance into heaven and they just don't have a walk with God. There's nothing going on there. And we run into people like that. We want to be able to help them in such a way that we can help them see the reality of their condition. So this passage, I think, is going to be helpful for us. But first and foremost, we want to pay close attention because we should be looking at ourselves to consider if God is exposing something about us or in us that we need to repent of, we should next evaluate uh, what is acceptable as genuine belief and just the kind of things we've talked about here. And is it true? 
We should also be humble and teachable and honest and willing to let the text of God's word teach us rather than some system of theology or some tradition or some connection to some church or some pastor. Um, have you ever interacted with someone and, and you know, the, you know their, their reason for saying, hey, I know I'm going to heaven is because, you know, my grandfather was a pastor or, you know, they're connected. It's, it's interesting how people connect dots like that and think that's, that's okay. Now, in verse 66, here's what we read. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walk with him. Would you say that's a sad statement in Scripture? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walk with him. Just, just you know, feel the impact of what is being said there. These are people who had seen Christ in ministry, who had experienced his power, who had listened to his teaching, and at some level have said, mm, you know what, I want to follow him. I want to pursue him being my master. I want to learn from him. But here we have in this passage them walking away, turning away from him. Incredibly sad. Why do many disciples turn back and no longer walk with Christ? Well, there's a flow in this text, and I want you to just to, just to note the flow. Um, there's an offense, and you read that early on in the passage, that leads to grumbling, and that grumbling ultimately ends up with a turning away. They're offended at something, and when they're offended, they start to grumble, and after they've grumbled a while, and in particular in this passage, even after Jesus comes and gives them more instruction, they end up turning away. So these hard sayings, and, and, and this is really important for our understanding of this passage, these hard sayings were not hard because they were difficult to understand. These are hard sayings because they were offensive to the hearers. That word hard, that whole idea, is it's an offense. They are offended by what Jesus is saying. So those who don't understand ultimately are still following God. They're still following Christ. But it's those who did understand what Jesus was claiming and saying, but could not accept it or tolerate what he was saying, that eventually turned back from following him as disciples. They were offended. Now, how many people you know, have ever experienced someone being offended at your faith and the fact that you are following Christ? All right? There's an offense. All right? Now, this, this word is, is really important. Um, does the gospel offend? Yes or no? Absolutely. So we shouldn't be as surprised if people are offended by it. But oftentimes they're offended, number one, by what they don't know, but secondly, sometimes they're offended because they think they know what it is that you're saying, and they have a distorted understanding of what that is. So the readers of John's gospel need to ask themselves a couple of questions. Question number one, if these marks are true about me, does that reveal that I am a fading disciple? Fair enough question. Number two, if you are certain about your position in Christ, are you willing to see areas where you struggle and drift in the pursuit of your discipleship? Now, let's get into some of the uh, actual marks here of a fading discipleship. First of all, um, they are easily influenced by the establishment. You say, what does that come from? Well, this is not necessarily right from this particular text, but it's from the greater text. If you remember in the, in the story here um, uh, that Jesus has begins with the crowds. They'd followed and pursued him to make them his or make him their king and the one that would provide bread daily 
and daily and daily, just like Moses did. But when Jesus said, hey, you know, I have, you know my, my bread is, is permanent. It's not perishable like Moses. Well, oh, yeah, we want that. All right, so they, they, there was this kind of pressure to make him king. Then the Jews, the leadership in particular, come. They grumble. They argue about the claims of Jesus. There's this, this tide of popularity then um, that was quickly, quickly turning. All these people were following, and when Jesus begins to make these claims, the, the tide is turning. And remember, when Jesus sent the disciples out on the boat, and we talked about why would he do that? And one of the reasons was to protect the disciples. Because the establishment, I'm saying the crowds, the religious leadership here, can influence, and they can, they can plant seeds in people's hearts that are thinking about, ah, you know, here is, here's this rabbi I want to follow, but oh, I'm not sure if I should. If they're saying this is, this is not healthy, this is not good, maybe I should reconsider what I'm doing. Okay? There's this establishment that is there. And, and someone who has a, a fading discipleship is easily influenced um, by the establishment here. Now, the establishment, the crowds, the religious elite, they have now a different opinion about who Jesus is, just like the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Remember that? John, we, we studied that. How did the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem respond? They were saying, this is blasphemy, and they ultimately wanted to do what? To kill Jesus. All right, so now we're in Galilee, different location. Remember, he came through Samaria, a woman at well, and now he's in Galilee. These people are getting to the same place. The tide of popularity, the winds of popularity have turned. And so you have the crowd, and you have the religious leadership, and now you're left with the disciples. And some of the disciples are like, oh, man, those people, they, they don't want to follow him anymore. I wonder if that's where I should go. Okay? And friends, this, this is not unusual to be swayed by what the establishment says. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think the media in the United States is going to be honest about the truth of the gospel in the lives of people? You should, you should, come on. Probably not, right? There may be some snippets. There may be some, some godly people that are in, in the media, so to speak. But by and large, that's not what you're going to hear. It's always going to be twisted and turned in such a way that there's going to be a distortion and really a distorted picture and understanding of what is being, um, what is being considered. Um, we, we are living in a context, friends, where there is heavy influence to push us away from the things of God. In particular, around Easter time, it's not unusual for articles to be in the paper about, you know, how dumb the resurrection is, right? Um, it, it's just this, this attitude. There's this, there's this establishment. There's this move against Christianity. It's like, why, why would you believe in such foolishness? That's not necessarily coming from biblical Christianity. That's coming from the winds of popular opinion that can sway people and simply be like, oh, it's really foolish. Um, then you have these disciples who, who are reminded of the counsel that they're given from Jesus but are wrestling now with the establishment. They're reminded of Psalm 1.1. There's a reason why it's the first, um, first verse in the, in the book of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's all talking about this, this influence that other people that are ungodly will have on those who are seeking to pursue God. So the first mark here of a fading discipleship is that, uh, that they're easily influenced by the establishment. Let's look at the second one. 
They are easily offended by the message. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now, this word offense is actually the word that we get our word scandal from, right? Scandalizo is the Greek word. It's the idea of, of just being so offended, so, so shocked, so, um, so shocked to the point you would abandon, all right? I mean, when there's a scandal, people typically are not saying, oh, I want to join myself with the person that's causing the scandal. It's usually like, run away, right? And so here you have this, this message, and they're offended by this message. Now, what is the message that Jesus is talking about? What is it that, that they are, he's saying, you know, do you take offense at this? Are you going to abandon your faith at this? And we'll just summarize it by three things. Um, this is in your notes. It's not on, uh, up on the screen. What were the exclusive claims of Jesus? And that's ultimately what they were offended at. It was his exclusive claims. Number one, his origin and incarnation. I am the bread from heaven, right? Well, that can't be true. We know your parents. I mean, they're, they're offended at the fact that Jesus would claim to be from heaven and that he is now incarnate. Um, he is now on this earth. So his origin and his incarnation. Secondly, his role as mediator. Ultimately saying, I am the only way to God. You know, I am the bread of life, right? It wasn't like, well, there's many breads out there. You know, there's pumpernickel, there's sourdough. and No, there's just one, and I am it. And then there's the, the, the change in religious status. In other words, I am, I am superior to Moses. Now, that really shocked the system to some degree. Why? Because he's speaking to Jews. And they're saying, oh, well, you're saying you're greater than Moses? Yeah, in other words, there's a, there's a new era beginning here, and it's the era where, you know, the king has come. Right, Jesus has come. I have come. I am the bread of life. And they're offended. They're, this is a scandal for them. And so they just they cannot accept it. And they're easily offended by the message that Jesus has given. And listen, it, they, they were happy to follow him when he was doing the miracles, right? When he was healing people, when he was having compassion on those who were sick or um, the, the lame were there or casting out demons even. And the Gospel of John, by the way, if you look at a harmony of the Gospels, there's so much ministry that the other Gospels record that is not recorded in the Gospel of John that you have to say behind or before even this encounter and this discourse, there's a lot, a lot of stuff that, that has taken place. And so they've definitely seen Jesus at work, but now when he begins to press home who he really is and what he's calling for and what he expects, that's a hard saying. I'm offended at that. The third thing here um, is that they're easily blinded by the sensational. I think Jesus' response in verse 62 is a very interesting response. Um, he's asking here a question with an answer um, that is not what they would typically, or what they would expect. Jesus ultimately will ascend via the cross. But notice what he says in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I mean, these are the people that said, show us a sign. Do another sign. Woohoo! Show us a sign. Hey, here's a sign for you. The Son of Man who came down to this earth, what if you saw him ascend up into heaven? Would that be good enough? What would that look like? 
it would be at least a sensational experience, right? Wow. Sending up into heaven. But friends, <laughs> this is exactly what the rest of the Gospel of John is about. It is about Jesus' ascension to heaven. But his ascension doesn't go directly from where they are in Galilee up into heaven. His ascension goes by way of Jerusalem up to a hill called Golgotha, up to a cross where he dies, then he's buried, then he raises uh, from the tomb, and then he spends time with the disciples, then he ascends. In other words, this is not what they were expecting. But it is the story that is being unfolded here in the Gospel of John. Okay? So, so you know, I'll give you the sensational, but you don't even know what the sensational is. You don't comprehend what it is at all. Now, ultimately, these are the same people that are calling for the sensationalism that will be standing in front of Pilate's palace saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They're easily blinded by the sensational. The fourth thing here, they're easily distracted by the natural. And, and, and here, we just, we just pick up the things that have been talked about here. Um, flesh and blood. Eating the flesh, drinking the blood. And as we, as we go through some of the, 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 the encounters that John has, has laid out for us, there's, of course, you know, turning the water into wine. Well, the whole point there was to demonstrate, yes, his power over the elements, but also that he is this, what, new wine, Right? Um, when he was in the temple, he asked the question, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. You know, over their head, right? They, they did not comprehend it. Um, it. With Nicodemus, this whole idea of the new birth. Now, Nicodemus, we know, ultimately does embrace Christ, but there's this difficulty in comprehending these spiritual truths that are communicated in natural ways. There's the water of life with the woman at the well. Now we hear we have the bread of life. And he, you know, you, you are left scratching your head a little bit because these are the people, primarily, maybe not everyone, that had experienced eating all this food when Jesus was with them out in the wilderness and just took some loaves and fish and multiplied them and feed just, you know, multitudes. They experienced that. They embraced it. They enjoyed it. They, you know, they, they tasted it. And yet all they could think about was the physical satisfaction when Jesus was really using that as a picture of spiritual and ultimate and eternal satisfaction. So there's this inability to comprehend the spiritual lessons that are coming through literal examples. And again, if you go to the other Gospels, you'll find out there's parable after parable after parable. There's metaphors that are being, uh, being, being given but misunderstood. They're having a hard time with that because they don't have eyes to see. Let me ask you this. Is this also true of the, of, of the twelve? And the answer is, yeah, they're still struggling with things. And so Jesus takes them off into a place and he explains them. But they're still struggling with that. But they're not abandoning him. Okay? Now, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They do not have the capacity. They do not have the illumination that only comes by virtue of the Holy Spirit living in them to be able to understand that the words that are being said are not about the literal, physical, they're about spiritual realities. So in revealing these marks of unbelief or fading discipleship, Jesus now teaches all the disciples three very important truths. 
Let's just um, highlight them here as we, as we move ahead. Verse 63, here's the first truth. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. If you've ever received anything from me, um, if I've signed something, you'll notice that this is the verse that is next to my signature. You say, no, Rod, why did you choose that verse? I would like to tell you that I had this great study and I had this great time of theology and awareness and awakening and you know, I embraced this verse because it communicated everything that I was about and what I wanted to do. No, um, I was a senior in a Christian school and the yearbook was saying, hey, listen, we got your picture, we need a life's verse, and we need it like in 15 minutes. And so I was kind of wrestling, what should I do? And I saw this, and you know, I was just like, you know what, there's something here that, that really um, impressed me just about what was going on in there. And honestly, I did not comprehend what it was. I just read it and thought, you know, it's the Spirit who gives life. Yeah, I want, I want life that comes from the Spirit. The flesh is no help at all. Now, if you just take that word, that passage, and you take it isolated from the context, you are thinking your own flesh. But it's not talking about your own flesh, it's talking about whose flesh? Christ's flesh, because that's a subject that was dealt with in the, last, in the last passage. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so as, as I have you know, grown in my walk with God, I've gone back to this verse over and over and over again and found out, you know what, this is actually a great verse of Scripture. Just not what I thought it was when I first um, understood it. And, and it just kind of proves the point of where discipleship takes you. Sometimes you embrace things that you don't quite comprehend, right? So, life is found in the Word, not in the flesh. This is Jesus' answer to their struggling with this whole idea of the, of the literal um, you know, flesh, um, eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Life comes from the Spirit of God. He is the one who draws. He is the one who breathes life into us. He is the one who moves us from darkness into light, from bondage to freedom, from blindness into sight. And we sang about those things today. But he is the one in whom life uh, or, or from whom life comes, and that life is also found in his word. Christ's flesh here is not the point, but the words that he has spoken, they are the words that testify about him being the bread of life. They are the words uh, that point to his death, a bloody and bodily death that will be the sacrifice once for all. Now, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16. Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. I think there's an allusion here to this particular verse of Scripture. And I, we'll, we'll connect the dots here in just a minute. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16 says this, Your words, Jeremiah, speaking about God, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The point here, as we look back at, at Jeremiah, is that you cannot feed on Christ without feeding on Christ's words. To know Christ is to pick up the word of God and to feed on his words. Now, sadly, people think, aha, if I have a relationship with God, I can just you know, go sit on a mountain, he's going to speak to me. Um, you know, going to a mountain doesn't mean that you have any greater access to God than someone who's sitting in their, you know, in their lazy boy at home, although you might fall asleep in your lazy boy and not hear anything. But the point is, it's the Word of God that is the revealer of, 
God's purposes and will. You need his word. And to know Christ means you need to know his word. And don't think of that academically. Think of that from the perspective of feeding on his word, taking it in, meditating on it, studying it, gleaning it, connecting dots, understanding, ah, this is what Jesus is calling me to do. This is how he wants me to function. This is how I discern his will for my life. And sadly, in our kind of warm, fuzzy, greater American Christianity, we have this, this kind of bypassing of the word of God, and we want kind of this direct access, and God, you know, speak to me, and you know, I want to know your will, and we're looking up at the clouds to see if they're forming the shape of whatever it is. You know, where should we go on vacation? You know, in Australia. Good. All right. You know, and it's like, and, but that's, that's how oftentimes we think about things. And it's like, no, no, no. Uh, our walk with God is, is a walk of understanding that is through his word, and we apply truth and, and, and his word to life, and we meditate, and we study, and we, we hunger after it. So you cannot feed on Christ's word without feeding uh, on Christ, without feeding on his words, for truly believing Jesus cannot be separated from truly believing Jesus' words. So the point here is this. You can't say, well, I believe Jesus, but I reject the Bible. You can't say, well, I believe the Bible, but I reject Jesus. All right? Both have to be true. We're to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, the Bible says. And similarly, Jesus is the word and we must listen to his words. All right. Second lesson he's giving here, as, as these, these disciples are fading, he's saying, secondly, true life is rooted in, in God's sovereignty. Nothing comes as a surprise to Jesus. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus is not surprised. He's not surprised that there's a whole bunch of disciples that are ready to walk away from him. He already knows that. He's sovereign. All right? Two words here I think are helpful. His, his omniscience, omni, and then S-C-I-E-N-T, Un, or that's omniscient. He is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. And then his sovereignty, that means he's always in control, right? These work hand-in-hand. Hand. These are just attributes of God. So he is both all-knowing and sovereign. Their unbelief doesn't crush his plans, nor does the inevitable betrayal ruin his plans. I just want you to think about this. Jesus isn't heading to Jerusalem, going to the cross, thinking to himself, you know, I've got to do something about Judas because he's just going to mess up my plans. You know, I've, in today's world, if you have a bunch of disciples that are going to leave, what typically are you going to do? Don't leave. What do I have to do? Stay. Come. Right? Because we think that the mass is right. I don't mean mass in the sense of communion. I mean the mass of people are right, right? If that many people are leaving, then it, there must be some truth to what they're saying. Listen, Jesus is pressing on. He knows what's going on with the crowd, with the religious leadership, and a bulk of these disciples. And he is still pressing on. He's not changing his course because he is fully aware that this is all part of the plan. Man's sinfulness never thwarts 
God's purposes. And that is true in Jesus' unfolding plan of going to the cross. It's also true in your life. When people sin against you, that doesn't mean, aha, you know, life's plan, perfect plan, perfect will has been distorted. Well, it's changed from your perspective, but God already knows what he's doing, right? It's all part of his plan. And that is true through history. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a Bible study through the book of Ezra, and we just saw how God just controlled leaders and kings and did it in such a way to accomplish his purposes. And looking back, you just see, here's how he's working his plan perfectly for his nation. And friends, he doesn't just do it for the nation. He does it for us also. He's at work. And you know what? It's also a good thing to know is that even when you sin, he's still accomplishing his purposes through your sinfulness. He knows you're going to do that. Okay? In fact, although you're responsible for your sin, that's all part of his unfolding plan. Now, I can't explain that, but I'm thankful for the fact that that is true. Otherwise, we'll be walking through life and it's like, you know, one little sin. It's like, oh, no, you know, there it is. I've lost it. It's over. No, God knows. He works through that. In fact, oftentimes he, he goes, he, you know, he knows our sinfulness, but we grow through that sinfulness and the reconciliation that comes through what we have, what we have done sinfully um, before him. So God's omniscience and sovereignty are very, very important for us to recognize that true life is rooted in that. But there's, there's another side to this that we need to note. Um, you know, I've presented God's omniscience and his sovereignty in a positive sense. There's also a negative side to it, right? If God is all-knowing, what does that mean? He sees it all. He knows. You can't hide from him. You can't pretend. Now, you can fool yourself to think that you're hiding it from God, but you're not. He knows. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what you're thinking right now when I've said what I've said. He knows the condition of your heart. And, you know, there, there may be some here that are just burdened down. You're having a hard time listening because either I'm boring or you're consumed with things or you've got, you know, Mother's Day stuff going on afterwards. He knows all that. Okay? So I just leave it with him, right? But throughout the day, throughout the week, guess what? He knows, and there's a positive side, and there's a negative side. Actually, the negative side is really a positive side because you know what that means, that your God cares. And not only does he know, but he understands, and he is, he, he, he's there to help. He's also sovereign, and that just means that, all right, he's in control. These are my plans, but God, I want to do your will, and I'll let you do whatever you want to do. So God's omniscience and sovereignty are both comforting as well as convicting, Right? Comforting as well as convicting. And that's the beauty about God's, about God's attributes. So true life is found in the word. Secondly, true life is rooted in God's sovereignty. The third thing, true life is exclusively and uniquely through Christ. You can't get away from that. That's what Jesus has been drumming this whole time. I am the bread of life. I am the one that's come down. I'm the one sent from the Father. I am the one to whom the Father has given me um, these people. I am the one, all right? It's, it's, it's all about me. You say, well, that's pretty self-serving. Yep. When we are self-serving, it's always sinful. When God is self-serving, it's always pure and just and right. All right? 
So look at verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is a reference to man's unbelief. The this is. This, the this he's talking about is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In other words, those who are wandering, who are turning back, are clearly not part of the people that God has given to Christ. That's, that's his point. So we've seen this before in a different form. Look back at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. All right, so no one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So God, is, God the Father is drawing people to Christ. That's what that verse is saying. Verse 37 says, all, the, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So the Father then is giving people to Christ. And all that he gives will come, and whoever comes will, uh, I will never cast out. Verse 65, though, changes the focus a little. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me. This is Christ speaking, right? No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You get the difference there. He's dealing with words and God here in verse 65 grants the individual the ability to come to Jesus. Let me just kind of summarize this. All right, one verse, verse 44 says, the Father draws. Verse 37 says, the Father gives us to Jesus. Verse 65 says, the Father gives us the ability to come to Jesus. It is his gift. It's not just me saying I have the ability. It's saying it's only because of the Father giving me the ability that I am going to pursue Jesus. You have all these three different dynamics working together. It's just a beautiful picture of what is taking place here as God is forming us and drawing us into his fold. Now later in John's gospel, we hear Jesus say, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the vine. And the point here in John's gospel is to point to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, right? And that true life is only found in him. Still, notice verse 64. Sorry. Notice verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. From this time on, the point is, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What they wanted... He would not give what he offered, they would not receive. Now, those are some marks of a fading discipleship. Having come this far, they now begin to fade off, turn around, walk away. They're no longer walking with him. Even with some further counsel from Jesus. Now we want to look at the marks of a forging discipleship, a forging discipleship. Now, by forging... I'm saying this. I'm saying that there's still a work in progress. That means they haven't arrived. They don't have everything figured out. They still have much to learn, but they're headed in the right direction. Now, there's a sense in which we might be a little uncomfortable with this. We come from a culture that says, you know, once saved, always saved, right? Now, I believe that, but we can't We've got to be careful we're not fooling ourselves into thinking that simply some kind of a physical reaction, some physical response is the equivalent of true new life. And so as, as, as 
Christ's disciples, we want to measure our walk with him um, based on things that Scripture reveals. Fruit. Is there fruit in our life? Ladies, you went to, uh, to the dinner the other night. The fruit of the Spirit is an ongoing growth process, right? It's not just like, bam, there you have it. You have them all perfectly you know, now that you're a Christian. No, you're, you, 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 you look at the Word of God as a mirror to help you grow and develop and, and, and pursue and, and, and become like Christ. And so this forging is taking place here with these disciples but it is not picture perfect. And the reason I say it's not picture perfect is because we know that one of those 12 is Judas. And one of those 12, Judas, is not a true follower of Jesus Christ. So even this forging discipleship is not saying that all these people then have certainly come to faith in Christ. John, looking back, he has little statements in his gospel saying, aha, and we understood that later. In particular, I'm thinking about the passage where he's talking about the temple. We understood that later, what he was talking about, because at that point in time, we had full understanding of who he was, and now looking back at what he was revealing there, aha, we see what's going on. So there's, there's a tension for us here as we go through the, the Gospels here, because we like things a little bit more clear-cut, don't we? Okay? But it's the nature of the Gospels. These disciples have not yet come to a full formation of what they understand and what they believe. Well, what they believe, yes, what they understand, no. Okay? So let's, um, let's just press on here, okay? So look, if you would, please, at verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now just remember all the things that had happened, you know, in those days. He, Jesus fed the 5,000. Um, before that, he was teaching. He was, he was healing. Um, the disciples are there listening. Um, then we have the problem about the feeding of all these people, and Jesus performs this incredible miracle, and not only does he perform the miracle, but he involves the disciples in the distribution and the organization of it all. So it's, they're not just standing off. They're involved in what's going on. They're sent out onto a storm. They, they are there in the midst of the storm. They're trying to figure out what's going on, and then Jesus comes walking on the water. Okay, it doesn't happen every day. Um, you know, they're afraid. Jesus steps into the boat. Boom. The storm stops, and not only that, we're told in John's gospel, immediately they found themselves on the shore. So all these incredible things are happening. And then as they get on the shore, they start listening to all this talk, the crowds, the religious leaders. And, and, and the point here is just to kind of set all this stuff up, and Jesus would turn to them and say, do you want to go away as well? Having inf been influenced by all that, having experienced all that, do you now want to go away as well? Are you throwing in the towel? Are you giving up? So the question is a serious one. Maybe put it in a number of different ways. Have you been swayed by the crowd? Have you bought into the blindness? Have you buckled in your attempt to comprehend my teaching? Have you also been offended at what I claim? But notice the disciples, in particular the twelve, do not walk away. They stay. And so the question that we should be asking ourselves is this, why do some disciples stay with Jesus when many are going away? It's a helpful question to answer, isn't it? I mean, why would some leave? We've looked at that already, but why would now some stay? And we want to learn that, we want to see that, and hopefully we want to see ourselves in that also. Maybe another way to ask the question is this, what are the characteristics or evidences of a forging disciple? I came up with four. 
There may be some others. The first one I want, to, I want you to notice um, is what I'm going to call a, a teachable humility, a teachable humility. And all of these, by the way, don't think of these as the, the end of the road, kind of this is Chris, this is it. Um, think of these as more, more directional. This is, this is where they're headed in their discipleship, in their growth, all right? There's this teachable humility. And again, just like the first mark of, of a fading disciple, this mark also gathers the context and, and allows that to speak into what's going on with them. The, the crowds were blinded, of course, by their own ambition. The Jews were blinded by their, their own um, uh, faulty tradition. The disciples were blinded by Jesus' scandalous claims, but the 12 are not. These disciples, the 12 in particular, are teachable. They're willing to be challenged. They're willing to be used. They're willing to listen. They're enduring. They're, they're comprehending. They're being discerning. All right, so th- there is this, there's this humility. There's, if you remember last week, we talked about part of the reason the Jews in particular struggled was because of their pride. They could not accept the claims that Jesus was making because that undid their paradigms. And yet these disciples are staying because they're saying, well, okay, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. And I'm going to be humble to receive what you're saying even about me. All right, so this teachable humility is a mark of a forging disciple. Now, I have just a question, a couple of questions for you. Are you humble enough for God to speak to your heart through his word about some area of sin in your life? How do you respond? How do you respond when you're reading God's word for yourself in your own personal quiet time, and you're like, you know, oh, there's, this, there's this one theme again, and I know God's going to hit me. Do you, you kind of like skip it? Do you kind of jump to the next chapter? Do you just kind of, you know, brush over it? Because it's there. How do you respond to that? Now, friends, listen. If there's anyone who's going to deal gently with you and that you can have total and complete resolve with in an area of sin in your life, it's God. But so many times, we, we are not humble. We're proud because we want to hold on to what we want to hold on to. Are you teachable enough to learn from him through a pastor, a teacher, a godly friend, a child? Um, God teaches us in a lot of different circumstances through a lot of different people. Are you willing to be teachable? See, humility and teachability go hand in hand, don't they? I need to be humble, and I want to be teachable. And friends, that is, a, that is a beautiful and wonderful characteristic for a disciple to have. Lord, teach me. Help me to understand. Help me to see myself. And friends, that is a mark of a forging disciple because they truly want the scalpel of God's word to have its effect and to expose and to show what is there. They're not avoiding that. They're hungering for that because they want to have a relationship that is right with God and that is growing. Now listen, without teachability and humility, we will end up bristling and battling with God and his word. That's not where we want to be. Here's the second mark of a forging disciple. Um, we see here an exclusive loyalty. Um, there's a loyalty, but it's exclusively with one person, and of course that is Jesus. Notice what, what Peter says here. He answers Christ, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, we can read his response with you know, a couple of different ideas. Is this simply a resignation? You know, as if you know, it's like, well, there simply aren't any other choices, so I think I'll stick with you. Hopefully that's not how you propose to your wife, okay? 
it's just really no other choices. So I, I guess you're it, you know, I mean, that's just, no, I, I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Um, is, it simp- is, it, is it remembering, Lord, we, you know, to whom shall we go? As if, if, if they left Jesus, they, they could possibly find anyone or anything from their past that would bring satisfaction to them? Would they go back to their old pagan ways? Would they go back to their, their legalistic rituals? Would they go back to those things that Jesus spoke into and, and, and you know, gave them liberty from? Um, what are the choices, really? There really are no other choices. That's the point. I think what, what Peter is saying, listen, there, there, there is no one else that we can go to, and that's evident simply by even what he says next. You have the words of life. It is you. Our loyalty is to you. Now, just gotta, you've got to think about disciples and masters and the culture of, of you know, the, the Judaistic culture where you did, you found yourself a master and you, you aligned yourself as a disciple to that particular rabbi. Right? This is not talking about a church and a pastor dynamic. This is different. This is, this is aligning yourself to this rabbi, and there was a loyalty that was there. This is my master. This is my rabbi, and, and that relationship was agreed to by the two parties. And so that rabbi would take you through things and do certain things and challenge you so that you would grow, and you might bristle at it, but you said, okay, I'm going to do it because you're trying to shape and fashion me. And that's what Jesus is doing with us. And so there is no choice. And I think what God is wanting us to do here is to affix ourselves to Christ in such a way that we will cling to him, even with this barrage of, of, of teaching and thinking and philosophy. And friends, we just walk out these doors, and there's a barrage of stuff out there that's challenging and, and, and shouting and laughing and mocking at us. And I kind of you know, get the picture of you know, a bee on a windshield. You guys ever experienced that? You're driving, you start, and there's this... B that's there. You ever watch that? Ever had that happen? You're like, well, let's see how long this guy can stay here. You know, I remember one time getting on the freeway, and I'm going 70 and still there. You know, I'm thinking, man, you know. And, of course, I had the compassion to run the, the windshield wipers, you know, to, to help him off a little bit there. But, you know, the, the <laughs> that's really sadistic of me, I know, and I've revealed it, and it's recorded. But the, the reality here is this. This B is stuck, even with all this stuff happening, right? And that's how we, as forging disciples, kind of view our relationship with Jesus. We are exclusively loyal to him. There's no other. There's no other person for us to align ourselves with or hold on to except for Jesus Christ. And friends, that's, that's a mark of a forging discipleship. Here's the third thing. We see a gospel satisfaction, a gospel satisfaction. The crowds that had been attracted by the miracles of Christ, but his, they, hadn't, they had been attracted by the miracles, but not by his words. In fact, his words were what repelled them and offended them. But the twelve here are attracted by the teaching of Christ. They saw the miracles. And just, just before I, was, my, I had my wife's Bible and I was looking at the harmony of the Gospels and I was looking at all the other, you know, the three other Gospels and just all the different things that were taking place in, in, in the record of those Gospels before this point. And, I mean, they were seeing healings and healings and blind people healed and lame people healed and Jesus do this. And they, I mean, they were seeing all of this stuff. But what they were most interested in 
was not the sensational. They were interested in the words of Jesus. And that's why Peter here, speaking for the 12, says, you have the words of eternal life. That's what, that's what we're attracted to. You have the words that, that produce life. The words of Christ can only be realized and understood, as we've talked about, when the gospel has affected someone, when they have the Holy Spirit residing in them to be able to see, ah, this is what the, the word of God is actually saying. And so a true disciple, a forging disciple here, is one who has a hunger for the word of God, not simply for knowledge and facts, but because in that word is life. So your life grows, and you're meditating on that life, and it's just continually growing. And I think, I think Peter is also responding to what Jesus said earlier. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's the words that I have spoken to you that are spirit and life. The last one here is this. We see a, a settling conviction. Now, notice I didn't say a settled conviction. I said a settling conviction. Anyone here settled in your convictions? I mean, here, here's how it typically works, right? Here's someone who, who is drawn by God into the family of God. They've experienced salvation. They receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them. And at that point in time, they know everything there is to know about the Bible. Is that right? They know everything about God there is to know. They could rattle off all his attributes. They can tell you exactly what he's commanding them to do and not to do. Is that right? No. What happens is, biblically speaking, properly speaking, this person then finds themselves as a child of God, which means they're part of that invisible church. They align themselves then with a physical church like our church, and then that church helps them with an understanding of some doctrinal truths. And there is a sense in which, and get this, there's a sense in which this new believer is relying on that church to help them establish some truths about who God is and what he says and what he expects. And then, as they continue in their walk with God, they're coming to conclusions that are their own conclusions because they're studying the Word of God for themselves, right? So there is a proper place for what I call borrowed convictions, I'm resting, I'm trusting in that organization or those people that are discipling me and helping me to say, I'm, you know, I'm going to align myself, I'm going to learn from them, but I ultimately need to come to the place where I am forming those convictions myself. And a conviction simply is when we come to the place where we see this is what God's Word teaches and we believe that it is true and it is true for eternity. This is, this is, you know, this is forever. This is what it is. I've come to that settled place. But here... They're settling in their conviction. They're getting to the place. They're moving in the right direction. They have not um, arrived, okay? So um, let's think then about the, the verse that's being talked about here, verse 69. And we have, this is Peter saying, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We believed and have come to know. It's interesting, the, the order there, we believe first, then we've come to know kind of reinforces that whole idea of, yes, we've believed you, Lord, but now we are coming to know the realities of who you are in our walk with you, okay? So there's a settling conviction, but it, it is something that marks them as being distinct. They are forging ahead. They're not fading away. Now, one final lesson I think will be appropriate here as we see this unfold and finish up this, this particular chapter. Notice here, Peter is speaking for the 12, which is typical for him, right? 
I mean, he's the first one, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak for the disciples. But there's probably no way for him to know that Judas was going to betray Christ. Now, just think about that. If he's speaking for the 12, he has no clue at this point in time that Judas is going to betray him. And yet, we find here, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? I mean, this is, boom, <laughs> here it is. You haven't arrived yet. You are not necessarily all um, the elect. You are not, you know, fully, completely in the kingdom here because there is someone here that is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And, and, and a couple of things I think it's important, first of all, to note here. That is another reminder here that there are no secrets that are kept from Jesus. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's in your heart. Secondly, we must admit that if Jesus can fool the 12, then it's possible for Judas's, so to say Judas can fool the 12, then it's possible for Judas's to be in the ranks of the best churches. And it's possible for Judas's even to be positions of leadership. If Judas can fool the 12, then Judas's can fool us. And we can do all the work we want to try and help people in their walk with God, but there are some people that know how to play the game, know how to walk the walk, know how to do all the different things, know how to say what they need to say, but really are not walking with God at all. There is a cold, empty heart. And friends, that should shock us. Now, our, our time is done but I, I do just, just want to remind you here that what we have is Jesus declaring himself as the bread of life. He alone is the one that satisfies. He is the one uh, alone who has come as a sacrifice for man's sin. And if we feed on him his flesh and his blood, which are symbolic of his death on the cross and who he is and what he's accomplished there, then we have entered into this life. And when those hard messages go out, there are some people that have all, all the trimmings of being believers that will not be able to endure what Jesus says in his word, and they will turn away. But then there are those who, even in the barrage of all that, will press on. And friends, that's where Jesus wants us to be. That's how he wants us to be. It doesn't matter how much you know, how little you know. It's the orientation that Jesus is concerned about here. Am I forging my way toward Christ? Now today, we recognize that Jesus Christ accomplished um, our salvation on the cross. And I just want to encourage you to look back a little bit and to ask yourself the question, am I a child of God? Do I know him? Am I a true believer? And when you ask yourself that question, be honest. Are there things that I doubt about the Lord Jesus Christ? doesn't mean I'm an unbeliever, but am I struggling with some area that I am questioning and I'm, I'm just I'm doubting? And, and yet at the same time, you say, even though I'm doubting, Lord, I'm trusting you. You are my Savior. You're my Master. I want to follow you. This is kind of a continental divide passage. There are some that will follow there are some that will not. The question is, will you? Lord, help us today. This has been a, uh, a very important passage of Scripture, and yet, Lord, at the same time, this has been hard. Lord, we need to know, first of all, 
that we are secure in you. That even though we can ask ourselves these hard questions, Lord, we know that, that you have us securely in your hand. And at the same time, Lord, you want us to be oriented in a direction, Lord, that is heading uh, down the path, Lord, to, to, to honor you and to glorify you with our lives. And I just pray, Lord, this morning, if there's anyone here that, that is, might be in that category of being a, a fading disciple, they've, they've been a part of church for a while, they've, they know how to, how to walk the walk and kind of do the things, but they just don't want to submit and listen to what you say, the hard truths of what you call for, their obedience, um, their conformity to you. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would convict. And Lord, that if there's new life that is taking place, that is fashioning because there's a humility in that heart, Lord, I ask that we would celebrate that together. Lord, we, we love you. We are thankful for you. You are to be praised for who you are. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of disciples that you've called us to be with your strength, by your word and your Holy Spirit, we ask in your name. Amen.